0: Good morning everyone. Good morning. Why don't you come on back and have a seat? Grab your last cup of coffee and your bagel. My name is Susan Van Reesen and it is a great pleasure to see you all here this morning and thank you for those of you who are joining us online. We're extra friendly today, so come on back. <laughs> extra love. Um, this morning, as we took time to pray before the service, we felt like we were hearing from God that it would be really good for us to put some attention um, and lean into our desire that God would open up our hearts to hear a message from him as I speak from the scripture. So someone had this thought, um, let's, you know how we pray throughout the service, but we especially wanted to take a minute to pray now, um, that we would really have open hearts, that we wouldn't just be like, yeah, 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 but that we would have open hearts and this would not just be like flowing through time, but that this would be a time of receiving supernaturally from God. So would you turn to one or two people around you? And have someone pray for open hearts in this time before I preach the word. I'll bring us back together in a minute. Yes, Lord, I just pray over these. Would you honor these prayers, Lord, that we're earnestly lifting up before you and be with us today. In this time, Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard something from God, like received something from God that was really discouraging. Okay, I think, you know, usually you're like, oh, I just want to hear a word from the Lord. And you want that to be encouraging, right? Something affirming, something supportive, something like, I just love you. And you're like, oh, that's a good word from the Lord. You know, like, or I'm, I'm just with you. And I love it when God says stuff like that. You know, just I need to hear that. I'm an I'm open sponge to hear affirming, encouraging words from God, right? But have you ever experienced receiving a word from God that was kind of negative or not so encouraging or kind of heavy? You ever had that experience? Years ago, I was in a Christian community, not this one, but I was in a different Christian community, And I felt like God spoke to me about this one girl in our community. And I didn't know her very well. It's not like we were best friends. We didn't have, like, tons of trust. But I felt like God was saying to me really strongly and really clearly, that girl's going to fall away from me. And I was like, okay, what do you want me to do about that? But it was really strong. I even had a dream about it, echoed in many ways. So I felt like, oh, I have to do something about this. Finally, I asked her if we could chat. And I was like, hey, I feel like I'm hearing from God. Maybe that I have this image of you not following God anymore. I mean, that's kind of negative, right? You know, like, who wants to hear that? And she was like, okay. (laughs) I was like, I don't know. Let's just pray. So, you know, we chatted. We prayed. We didn't know what to do. And then we just kind of left it at that. And then years later, I heard from other friends that she was not into God anymore. And that was kind of hard for me. You know, kind of negative. And... I think I would have rather heard a really positive, encouraging, affirming word from God. But what do you do when it feels kind of negative? What you earnestly feel like God is saying. I wonder if the prophet Amos ever felt that way. I wonder if Amos was like, hey, so God... Uh, what do you think about messages like, fear not, for I bring you great news of, of joy for all people. That'd be such a great message. Do you think maybe I could, I could share a message like that? Like some message that's just so encouraging and positive. And I imagine that God would be like, hey, that, that's a good one. I'm saving that for later. Um, I create the messages, you just share them. Well, this morning, we are on our fourth of five sermons from the book of Amos. And um, Amos was an Old Testament prophet who's speaking to the people of Israel who are economically comfortable but spiritually unhealthy. And the next section that we're going to look at in the book of Amos um Amos has four visions with four powerful images which capture Amos's central message. And before each vision he starts with this phrase, "This is what the sovereign Lord showed me." So each time there's this rhythm of him saying, "This is what the sovereign Lord showed me," then he has this image. All right. So this is the first image. He has an image of locusts locusts are like grasshoppers um this is the uh, this is chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 this is what the sovereign lord showed me he was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up when they had stripped the land clean i cried out sovereign lord forgive how can jacob survive he is so small so the Lord relented. So locusts are a common judgment of God for the people at this time. Um, it would cause major agricultural damage, massive human misery, and famine. Um, th- I don't know if you know this, but locust swarms happen even today. It, a, a major occurrence of this happened in 2020. In the middle of the pandemic, there was a crisis Of locust swarms in uh, North and East Africa, North and East Africa, that were like the worst in seven decades. It hit this area, and they said that a cloud of locusts would come, and it, it seemed like a storm cloud because it was so dark and it would shut out a lot of the light of the sun. And a locust swarm can encompass 15 million insects. Per square mile. And each individual locust can eat the equivalent of their whole body weight in one day. Think about that. It could eat their whole body weight in one day. Just devastating uh, agriculture and the natural landscape. So this is like a really intense and serious thing that would happen... Um, the, these locust behaviors have been around for a long time Even in the time of Amos And people in the Middle East and North Africa They would be very aware of what this would be like um, And uh, now we have some measures Like pesticides, helicopters, things like that AI Back then they had very few defenses It's kind of interesting actually They have very few defenses when the locusts came and it was an extremely scary thing. So Amos said these locusts would come after the king's share was harvested. So at that time, how it worked was the king's share was like a tax. The first bit was harvested. That was given to the king. And then after that is the part that the people would eat. But it was right after the king's share was harvested, right when the people are waiting for the, the, their portion— and that's when the locusts came and just ate, would eat everything. This is what Amos is saying. And uh, they would understand that this, the timing of this meant nothing else is coming. No other food is going to be grown. We're talking, it would be an image of massive starvation and devastation for the people. It's so devastating that Amos pleads to the Lord. Amos gets it. And he's like, oh, wow, that's horrible. Oh, Lord, how can Jacob stand? So God relents. And this is purely based on Amos's intercession, right? It's not like the people have had a chance to be like, wow, we repent. Okay, the second image is an image of fire. Verse 4 through 6 says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. So Amos immediately knew how intense a a landscape of fire would be. And how powerless humans are in light of this. Big fires could, could uh, devastate entire cities. And you just, I mean, there's not much they can do. They have to wait for it to just die out or rain or, you know, there's, they're pretty powerless against out-of-control fires. So Amos intercedes again. And again, the Lord relents. Now, what is it about the Lord relenting? You know, I'm just kind of curious, because we see this pattern where Amos hears a prophecy about what's going to happen, Amos intercedes, and then God says, okay. Have you ever heard that dynamic before in the scriptures? This is, this is a theme that comes every now and again, right? Uh, most notably, when Abraham, in Genesis 18 and 19, intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, you know, dialogues with the Lord about it, and the Lord relents. We see this again in, in the book of Jonah, when God decides not to destroy Nineveh because the people repent. So we've seen this theme of God uh, pronouncing judgment, but then saying, "Okay, I relent." Now I, I want to say that this, the point of this is not to highlight that God is wishy-washy and that he wasn't sure exactly. He was like, ah, should we go this way or not? What do you think? You know, it's not like God's unsure of what he's going to do. In fact, the scripture is clear. In fact, this scripture is clear that the name of the Lord is the sovereign Lord, right? So even in Amos, we see he's like, God is in control. God sees and knows everything. He's eternal, omniscient, Uh, Amos addresses him as sovereign Lord. God does not change his mind in the way that humans change our minds. But most theologians agree that what's going on here uh, is that God is responding. He's revealing himself to be someone who responds to humans as we intercede. He likes it when people interact with him and ask for his mercy. Human action does matter to God. And God chooses to work his will. uh, It matters to God and in how God chooses to work out his will on earth. So this dynamic of Amos' intercession points to the great twin truths of God, that God is merciful but also just. We see in this story, this narrative holds That truth, that God is merciful, but also just. just, And that God values human interaction, human response in the the midst of his judgment and repentance in the midst of of coming judgment. All right, this third image is a plumb line. How many people here know what a plumb line is? All right, some builders, yeah? Uh, Yeah, certain contractors in the room would know. What a plumb line is. Okay, a plumb line is a metal weight that is at the end of a string or a cord. And you hold it. It's probably more complicated than this. But you hold it up, and uh, it uses gravity to show you what is straight. Right? What is a straight line? Verse 7 says, This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall um, that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. By my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the one who's king at this time in Israel. So, a plumb line is an image of something that is purely straight. So this is an image of the straightness or the righteousness of God, that uh, rightness is not compared to someone else, but is compared to what God determines as right, as straight. I think this is significant because in the history of most religions, and even in the history of Christianity, There is a pattern, if we are honest, this pattern of amazing, powerful Christian leaders who are at some point revealed to be not who they should be or who they say they are. Am I right? Is this familiar to anyone that there are these people who are just powerful and amazing and influential and whatever. And they built maybe an amazing ministry and they preached to thousands and they've done this, that, and the other, and they have a ministry named after their name. And But then it turns out that they've been doing wrong things that are hidden, like sexually abusing people along the way, or they've been engaging in spiritual abuse or financial fraud or We all know examples of this, right? Too many. If you do not know, or if you've not been connected to, or touched by, or heard of, a Christian leader having this revelation of darkness happen, then hang in there, because you will. Right? It's just, it happens. It's so sad. And it happens because... I'm thinking maybe power can be a drug. You know, I think every time we encounter something like this, you're like, why? Why is this happening? And I mean, none of us really know except for sin. But I think maybe it especially happens to leaders because power can be a drug. And being amazing and important and gifted and talented and powerful seems to have a way of blinding ourselves and others to God's righteousness, what God says is straight, what God says is true, what God says is um, right. But the reality is, and what Amos is talking about, is that every person will be judged by God's totally straight plumb line, by his righteousness, not by the kind of leaning... Uh, ways of each other, but by God alone, that no one will escape, that no one gets to determine what's kind of okay. And this is not just true for Christian leaders, but this is true for all of us. Um, I mean, I think we can conceptualize it easier when we talk about them, those terrible people, but it's true for each of us. Right, whether you're a leader or not, or whoever you are, that the image here is that we will be judged by God's plumb line. Like every one of our days and every one of our thoughts are going to be captured or, in modern imagination, videotaped. Who would come off looking good? Which one of us would be like an amazing, inspiring story if, there was a documentary of each of our lives showing everything. Not me. But this is what the image of the plumb line reminds us of. That everyone will be judged by the line of God. Frighteningly, in this third image, there is no intercession by Amos. The, Amos interceding for the people drops off here. There's no appeal for God to change his mind. Simply a pronouncement of judgment. Now, after these three images, the judgment by locust, the judgment by fire, and the judgment via a plumb line, we get this strange interruption of sorts. We get this narrative dialogue. We have a conversation between Amos and Amaziah the priest. Amaziah is a corrupt priest of the city of Bethel under King Jeroboam. And Bethel is an important city close to Jerusalem, which has a rich and important history for the people of Israel. This is where Jacob wrestled with the Lord uh, early on in this history. So many things have happened in Bethel. And Amaziah, being the priest of the city of Bethel, it would be like uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, right? So a religious leader in a very important religious city, very symbolically important religious leader. But he was not exactly a good one. First, let me give you a little background on what's been going on in Bethel. This is from 1 Kings 12, 26 through 30. And it tells us that there's been all this political tension between King Jeroboam and King Rehoboam. I don't know why their names rhyme, but uh, there are two kings that are having a lot of tension between um, each other. And this is from 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord Rehoboam king of judah they will kill me and return to king Rehoboam After seeking advice the king made two golden calves He said to the people it is too much for you to go up to jerusalem Here are your gods israel who brought you up out of egypt one He set up in bethel and the other in dan and this thing became a sin The people came to worship one at bethel and went as far as dan to worship the other. Do you see what's happening here? There's like a landscape of political tension. There's the desire for power, and there is the, uh, the manipulation of the people, the people who want to worship. And so he says, hey, let me consult my people. I know, we'll make calves. You know, we'll make these golden mini cows, and we'll set them up here so you don't have to go there and we're less likely to, you know, you're less likely to go to this other um, political party. So he's using religion to manipulate political power. And Amaziah is a spiritual leader who, is, who has allowed basically idol worship to be set up right in the middle of this special city Bethel. And not only is Amaziah nice and cozy with a corrupt and blasphemous king, He's doing the king's dirty work for him by kicking out this prophet Amos. So Amaziah, he's been co-opted by the political king, and then he's doing his dirty work. In verse 12 of chapter 7, it says, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. Because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Do you feel the ick of this situation? Let's just take a minute and go, yeah, that's gross. That's just... Amaziah is like, "Um, we're under the authority of the king here. This is the place of Jeroboam, and we're all on his side. So go back to Judah, Amos. Stop criticizing the way things are run here. People like this golden calf situation. It works for us. And a little bling doesn't hurt anyone. So we've just set it up, and we'd rather you not really say anything about it. So if you could leave. This is a priest of the people who are defending the king's idolatrous ways. It makes you want to ask, what has happened to Amaziah that he's willing to back a sacrilegious, godless king in his unrighteous ways? What we see here is an example of God plus, right? We see an example of we're worshiping God plus God plus the King, God plus politics, God plus the image of other gods. the The calves are definitely the golden calves are are echoes, images of uh, non God fearing nations that surround them. They're like, oh yeah, people do this all the time. It works. It's flashy. They like it. So we're just going to blend, and we're going to have, yeah, the God who he did um, help us come out of Egypt, but we're just going to fuse that with other stories, other things. And as long as God is woven in there somewhere, that's okay, right? And lest we Americans be too judgmental, let us acknowledge that that temptation is there for Christians in this time right? God plus. God plus money. God plus entertainment. God plus being cool. God plus success. Just kind of fusing, interweaving those things together, because God's totally in there. You know, this part of the story, but we're just going to get some other things and mix it in, come up with a, our own modern thing. An illustration I wanted to share with you is an Instagram account. Some of you may be aware of this. It's an Instagram account called preachers and sneakers. And the guy who runs this account is a Christian who follows various pastors who show up on social media wearing sneakers and clothes that cost thousands of dollars. So, you know, uh, churches are online now, so you can got to see what are these pastors wearing? And, um, Apparently, there's a thing where um, there are a lot of pastors who like to wear sneakers. And I don't know if you knew that, but sneakers can be like $1,500, depending on the right, cool ones you're wearing. So this site will look up their shoes or their clothes and post how much each wears. So there's the guy in the middle here. Um, it are his clothes this man for example is wearing a gucci jacket that is worth thirty five hundred dollars And matching loafers that go for eight hundred and fifty dollars God plus style God plus cool God plus Gucci or louis vuitton or air jordan God plus celebrity Or In some parts of this country, you'll get God plus nationalism, right? God plus America. So we equally love God. We also love America because America was supposedly founded on Christian principles or because we're a chosen nation or because God blesses America. And some of those things are true, but some of those things are not. So the idea here is that we should worship God and that is something else too. And, you know, just put them together. And this is what Amaziah is saying to Amos. He's saying, we're having, we definitely have some God, but we also have this other source of power, and we'd like you to leave us alone about it. We don't need some backwoods prophet coming over here saying annoying things that disrupt how we've set things up, because this, this is Bethel. This is a place of power. We've got religion behind us. We've got a popular king behind us. We've got these sparkling statues of golden calves. Our social media is amazing. And everyone is buying our merch. So, you know, things are going well. We'd really appreciate it if you'd just go away. But Amos, who has no credentials, is unafraid and undaunted. In verse 14, Amos answered, Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amaziah is like, Do you know who we are? We're awesome. We've got a lot of power, a lot of influence. People respect us. You know, we're very popular. And Amos goes, I'm like normal person. (laughs) I'm like nobody. I'm not even a professional prophet. You told me to go and make my bread in Judah. I don't make my bread by being a prophet like other prophets do. I'm just like a herder of animals. I'm a normal guy. But God called me and gave me something to say. And I don't really care who you are. I'm going to say it. Verse 16, he says, now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land you know I come from a culture that's a little conflict avoidant you know in Korean culture if you disagree with someone or if you know you're kind of wanting to go the opposite direction you find a way to be like oh sometimes people take off shoes before coming to my house but it's okay you know like you're something you know kind of indirect but Amos not Korean. Amos is not in this way conflict avoidant. He's just like, "Um, how about I just say it how it is? Your land will be measured and divided up, and you will die in a pagan country. He's just like, here it is. This is what God has given me to say to you. And Amos is not taking Amaziah's advice. He does not cower before the powerful. He speaks out, and he tells them that they are destined for judgment. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see the final image that God gives to Amos. So we've seen locusts, fire, plum line, and so we see the fourth one here. In verse 1, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. I'm a gardener, and I have a number of different vegetables and fruits. Um, And I know that when my fig tree, uh, when the figs on my fig tree ripen, that's the last one. You know, so usually the tomatoes are all gone by then and the zucchini and the, the lemons were a completely different season. But when the fig, figs ripen, I love it, but you know, like, oh, that's the end of the season. You know, then we're going to go into dormancy and then, um, uh, what's that called, uh, pruning. And here, the word for ripe fruit The Hebrew word for ripe fruit, it's kind of wordplay because it also sounds like the word for the end. And God is saying to Amos, look, Israel, through Amos, you don't have much time left to repent. Don't just think you can be spiritually lax because things will always just be the same. Your time to repent is now because time is running out. Basket of ripe fruit. It's like a ticking clock. It's like, oh, this, this fruit, this fruit, this fruit, and then at the end of the summer. And people would look at it because they live in an agricultural society where you don't import things from Chile, you know, it for Safeway. But they would know, oh, when we have this fruit, then it's almost fall, and the cold winter will come. The time to repent is now. And again, the reasons for the Lord's judgment is this this theme that we've seen all throughout Amos. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating. With dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Here, not only do we have social injustice, we have people who have superficial worship. People who are perfunctorily doing religious things, but really what they want to do is be done with worship so they can go do their work and make their money. What they really want to do is... Uh, They're they're worshiping of money And we see selfish ambition and shorting people and when it says making the ephod small they're uh, Fixing their measurements so that uh, that they can make more money off of that. They're cheating basically And their hearts were doing their own thing rather than the priorities of god therefore God tells them that he will send them the worst consequence of all. This is verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord, sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. A famine of hearing the the words of the Lord. What would that be like? A famine of hearing the words. Remember, uh, notice this is not a famine of the words of the Lord, right? It's not like he's not giving his words. But what is it? A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. What's not happening there is people can't receive it. People can't hear God's word for them. And, and the people of Israel would understand God's word is life. It gives them hope, it gives them direction, it gives them the presence of God, it gives them wisdom. It reminds them of the things that they so easily forget. But what, the, what is coming is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Now have you ever experienced not hearing the word of God? Have you ever experienced going to church and being like that was a good sermon. What was good about it? I have no idea and I can't even remember a single word that was said. Okay me. Or where you're you're like you're doing your stuff and you're going to small group you're going to church but you're like i don't know i can't hear anything from god there's no conviction i don't even remember it and when the word is there i get a little sleepy you know where you're just like it's like a a intoxication where i just can't receive or hear the word of god well we ought to know that is a dangerous judgment and the people of God would go, oh no, that is a horrible judgment. That is something where you go, when you realize that's happening, a famine of hearing the word of God, it is time to wake up. It's time to say, this would be terrible. I'm on the path of death. If I'm experiencing a famine of the word of God... That means my ears are plugged and my heart is headed toward hardening. Because you can live without a lot of things. But you can't live as a believer without the life-giving presence of the word of God. I'm not kidding you guys. If you are resistant to the word of God... We're headed toward death. My mom and I were were lamenting um, some people that we know. And they used to be so alive spiritually. And they're just dead now. A spiritual corpse. And we were like, who knows why that happens. And my mother, who's, she's not a person of nuance. (laughs) But she just goes, I know why. They're not reading the Bible. And I was like, "Ah, Mom, I think it's more complicated than that. (laughs) But I think there's something true about what she said. Because there is a lack of respect, a lack of desire, a lack of openness to the living word of God. And for the people of God, that is death. That is separation from God. And if this is happening communally, like in mass and that's a great great danger if our church ever gets to the place where we experience a famine of hearing the word of god let's say we have that and the holy spirit is not here with us helping us to soak in and receive the word of god what kind of community do you think we'll be quickly corpse of a community We cannot live without the living word of God. Whether you're receiving it or studying it or, you know, many ways to receive and consume and be open to the word of God. But without it, we shall surely die. And we shall surely be away from our living God. Because the word of God is one of his greatest gifts to us. I started this sermon by talking about an awkward situation where I felt like I had to say something to this woman who um, God had given me this image of her falling away. And I, don't, I still to this day don't know exactly what that was all about. Um, but the one thing I tell you is I'm glad that I did something with what I heard. Because one of the most sure ways that you can stop hearing the word of God is to stop acting on it, right? Like if you keep God is speaking to you, God is saying things to you, he's nourishing you, and you're like, mm, thanks, and you don't act on it, whatever it is from of uh, the word of God that you're supposed to be applying, and if you just stop acting on it, on God's prompting, you can be sure that your hearing will be turned way down. You're not going to keep hearing because you're not acting on the word of God. If you don't, we don't walk in an active trust of God. If we don't continue to seek God, our hearts and our ears will actually deaden. And we won't be able to hear or sense or experience God. Just like if you continue to walk in sin and we don't hear God's invitation, warnings, we're turning away then our consciences become deadened right and this is what's happening so publicly for the many christian leaders who are doing all this stuff but then their secret sin right your consciences become dead you become blind and hard-hearted but if we repent and if we turn from our wicked ways if we seek god then we will live we seek god we will live and like all things like hearing like responding like acting repenting is a muscle like a muscle repenting is something that you just you have to continue to do so that you're like used to it so it's not weird to you when you you know when you do something where you're turning away from sin Are you working out the muscle of repentance? Where in big ways and small, you're like, oh, I see that in my life. I need to repent. I need to turn away. I need to try to be right with God. I want us as a community to do that too. If there are communal ways that we need to choose God and live, seek God and live. A couple weeks ago I talked about my temptation to I didn't use this word but to covet a building a place where we don't have to be a pop-up church and we were in that process of maybe getting uh, a little church to be in and I think um, you heard many of you heard that I sent an email saying we did not get it that the landlords chose um, another church and I want to stand before you and say I repent Again, I turn away from covetousness and I turn away from discontent before the Lord. I turn away from saying God's holding out on us. And you know, generally, you know, the staff, we're like, we're okay, we're not like severely disappointed, but even the little slivers of like nye, 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 I repent of before the Lord. Because I want to seek God and live. And I know that he has life for us. And even particularly this morning, I felt like God was saying, hey, for as long as you are a pop-up renters and kind of homeless in a way, why don't you identify with other people who are like that too? Might there be blessings for you in where I have you right now? Can you trust me with that? Can you trust me with where you're at in your communal life? And I want to say yes. Yes, I will. We will. I want us to. So I invite you to join me. Because we don't know how much time we have, right? Uh, We don't know that it's like, ah, I could do that next week. There's anything at all you need to let go of that's not right with the plumb line of God. Then let us repent. And let us be in practice of repenting. Come, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We've asked that we could be open to you. And I just ask now in Jesus' name that you would um, make us open to you. I thank you that you guide us, convict us by your Holy Spirit. I even thank you for your judgment, for Your judgment is meant to cleanse us. And I ask, Lord, now for each of us that you would give us the mercy of knowing what are some things that we need to repent of and use this time, Lord. Have your way with us, for you are good. Thank you, Lord.